0: We're back in Luke today, finally, after like a month. Um, So if you've got your, I don't know if anybody has a Luke booklet with them, but you can, there you go. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 15 today. We're talking about, um, today we're going to be do our first of two sermons on the prodigal son story. Okay, so hopefully everybody here, I'm guessing, (laughs) has heard the prodigal son story before, right? This is not brand new information for most of us church people we've heard this story it's pretty famous right it's one of the few parts of scripture that even just if you walked around like i don't know who's a jimmy kimmel does that thing where he stands out on the street and he asks people questions and they're all really stupid you know but i feel like even if he stood out there asking stupid people questions they would still be able to tell you most of them would know something about this story right something about the prodigal son story it's pretty famous right charles dickens you heard of this guy you know, he wrote things down. Uh, he said, it's the finest short story that's ever been written. I'm guessing he would know. Um, you guys have probably seen this, right? The Rembrandt, the famous painting. There's a couple of different famous famous paintings of the prodigal son. Uh, this painting is actually really interesting. I'm not gonna get into this, but go find on YouTube people that talk about paintings. Talking about this? I watched a little of that this week. It's pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, this is Jesus' probably most famous parable. And one of his most famous teachings, I mean, maybe in our culture, people who want to just uh, do whatever they want with no consequences will know the teaching judge not, lest ye be judged, without any context or what Jesus was actually talking about. But maybe besides throwing that in your face, this is maybe the other most popular or famous teaching of Jesus, anyway. As we take it, though, we want to—the we reason we're reading the book of Luke, if you remember, is to see Jesus for who he really reveals himself to be, right? Not the, these other pictures we've—baggage we've brought to the Gospels. We want to just look at Jesus and say, who are you and what have you taught us? Um, and so as we do that, context is super important for reading through passages like this. You don't just pull them out of the context, right? So let me give you the context here of what— Um, what's been going on right so in chapter 15 at the very beginning of chapter 15 jesus has this accusation hurled against him by the, the religious leaders of the day where they get all upset and they say jesus is eating with sinners he goes to sinners parties and he hangs out with them and he's nice to them and we talked about how they accused Jesus of a lot of crap, you know, but this is the one that was actually true. Yeah, he was doing it all the time, right? So everybody gets mad. So he tells three parables as a response to that accusation. Jesus, you keep hanging out with these bad people. So the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. You remember this one? So what happens is there's a lost sheep. The second parable—just kidding. Uh, you know, the sheep wanders off, and the guy leaves the other ones with his friends, and he goes, he finds it, and he gets all excited. And there's more joy in heaven, right? You know, and there's like they throw a huge shindig in heaven. I'm guessing Billy catered it, just like we're doing tomorrow. And they have a whole party because one sinner uh, repents and turns from sin. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin. So this lady's at her house, and if you remember, we talked about. The floors of most of these houses were dirt, right? If you had tile in your house, you were pretty loaded. So if this was a regular person, she's walking around at night and she's looking at her little coin pouch with her money in it and she goes, oh, wait, there's one missing. And then she looks around and she realizes this is a dirt floor. Now, if you've ever... One time I lost my wedding ring in the beach, you know, and then we found it. <laughs> so of course, it was a miracle. We were at a bonfire and it was nighttime with a bunch of church people and I went, nobody move. Everybody Look. <laughs> And then somebody like, hey, here's your ring, you know? Um, so that's a But anyway, now it can't happen anymore. You'd have to chop my finger off to lose my wedding ring. But. So anyway, you know that, like, you know, just lost something in the dirt or the sand. So she gets out her broom. She starts sweeping her house. She finds her lost coin. And I love it. She throws a party because she found her lost coin. And you remember the story I told of the one pastor in Philadelphia, this guy? He um, was teaching this in Sunday school once to some kids. And one of the kids goes, what an idiot this lady is, right? The party probably cost more than the coin she found. And he goes, yeah, I guess that's kind of the point, though, right? It's, she was so excited, she shared her joy, right? That's God sharing joy over sinners coming to faith. But what's happening in these parables is Jesus is ramping up the stakes. And so the, the sheep was, you know, the guy's 100. They're not really worth that much money. He lost it. The lady loses the coin. That's worth a little bit more. So we move from the sheep to the coin to now the parable of the lost sons. Um, This is also the longest of the three parables, right? Those other two were like two, three verses, right? And now we're going to take the biggest chunk of chapter 15 to talk about the prodigal son. Now, have you ever used a word a hundred million times and then never thought about what it means? And then if I asked you, what does prodigal mean? You would go... I don't know. It's the one from the son, the parable, right? It's the (laughs) right. But if I asked you right now for ten bucks to define the word "prodigal," anybody think they could? I'm not giving you ten bucks. I'm just right. Okay, here's what it means: wastefully extravagant. It's one of those words we talk about all the time. Nobody ever thinks about. It's just this is the prodigal son is the guy at Vegas who buys a round for the whole place. You know what I mean? It's just, really, you're a, that's a lot of money, dude, kind of a thing. You know, this is Oprah buying everybody a car in her, you know, um, in her audience. I guess she probably didn't buy it, but you get the point, right? Imagine if she bought it. So this is, we call this the prodigal son. Um, Tim Keller wrote this book. We have two or three of them on the back shelf there in the little library section. So this book is literally, I think, my favorite book of all time. It goes the prodigal son, then the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. But besides the Bible, this is my favorite book of all time. The book is called The Prodigal God, and it was written by Tim Keller. And uh, he actually stole that from this guy, Alexander McLaren, who was like this Victorian-era preacher, who was the first one to change the name of the parable from the prodigal son to the prodigal God. Right? The prodigal son says that the point of the parable focuses on the younger son and his extravagant spending after he takes off from his dad. Uh, The problem with that is the parable is not even about the younger son, and we'll talk about this next week. The whole today's sermon is about the younger son, but the actual main point of the parable is the older son. So uh, the idea of the prodigal God says is a great way, or the lost sons that's a better name for this parable, but the idea is God's lavish in his spending of his love, right? God's pouring out his love on both, uh, both of these idiot sons. All right, so we're going to walk through the text here, um, but we're only going to read like half of this. We're going to stop. Um, And so we'll get this the next half uh, next week. Don't read ahead. I don't want spoilers. All right, here we go. Verse 11. So, and he said, so this is after the other two parables, there was a man who had two sons, right? So in our parable, we have these three main characters, Uh, the father who clearly represents who? God, right? That's pretty obvious. Uh, Then there's the younger son. Remember the the context here, right, Um, at the beginning, what we talked about earlier. This man eats, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's in fellowship with these wicked sinners. So the younger brother is the sinners that Jesus is eating with. Well, who's then the older son? The older son in this parable, I think, represents the religious people throwing this accusation at Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so, like I said, there's these two parallel stories, though. There's the older and the younger. I think it's, it does a huge disservice to teach this parable and to read this and think the younger son is the main character. But at the same time, the story of the younger son is really cool. And so that's what we're going to, this is the part we'll read today. We'll get to the main point of the parable next week. All right, so here we go. Verse 12, let's read the parable then. The younger of them, so the younger of the two sons, said to the father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me and he divided the property between them so this is how do you say this word primogeniture is that right did I say that right I've only read that word now that I'm standing in front of people and I have to say it out loud primogeniture culture where basically it was in um, you know in a lot of ancient cultures and still actually a lot of modern cultures today where the uh, older son gets the preference in a lot of things right And this is just the way it works. So when the father kicks the bucket, eventually, the older son would get two-thirds of everything the father owns, and then the younger siblings would split up that last third, right? So this older son to keep things kind of in the family. And so the younger son goes to his dad and goes, hey, I want what's coming to me, but I want it right now, right? He wants his inheritance now. This was absolutely unheard of in first century culture, right? This is unheard of now in our culture, right? And we're not like clan, honor, shame-based like these guys were. Um, In this community-first culture, this was absolutely out of place. It was like his son saying to his dad, I don't care about you. I don't care about the relationship with you. I just want the stuff that I'm going to get when you die. It was basically him saying to his dad, I wish you were dead already. Now, an interesting something I read was, when you read the story, at the very beginning, the first thing we read about the younger son is that he's already lost, right? Uh, A lot of folks miss that key detail, right, when you read this. You think, oh, he he leaves the town, and then he's lost. But he's actually, he's already lost, right? He's lost before he leaves home, because his relationship with his father was already gone. Um, So even if he stayed behind, didn't take the stuff and take off, He would still be at home, but he would be the lost younger brother. This guy, he doesn't care about the relationship with his father. Now, the crazy part about this is the last sentence, and he divided his property between them. His dad did it. So this is absolutely nuts. Um, The word property right there where it says he divided his property. If you remember a long time ago, we did a sermon. I explained to you the different Greek words uh, for life. There's a couple of them. This is actually the word for life. Um, It's the word bios. Um, It's used intentionally. He didn't just give his son money. He gave his son the fruit of his entire life's work. Everything he had, everything he had poured into, he divided it up and he split it up and he gave his younger son the inheritance. He gave his younger son like a piece, a piece of him. Honestly, this is the first like crazy weird turn in this story. The father gives the son What you would expect for Jesus to say is the younger son went to the father and said, hey, give me what's coming to me. And the father, you know, basically like, I don't want to be your son anymore. I just want this stuff. And the father would have said, great, because I don't want you to be my son either, except I'm not giving you any stuff. See ya. Right? That's what we would expect from this story. But the very first thing we see is the father not willing to send his son away with nothing. And so we see the heart of the father almost right away. Breaks up the estate and uh, gives the son the, the, his part of the inheritance. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered up all he had. He took a journey into a far-off country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. So he gathered up all that he had. This is kind of like... Um, I'm not super, uh, you know, what's the, like, high finance and understanding how banks work, you know, um, and all that, you know, what with your stocks and whatnot. But I assume people have money and know how stuff works. In this first century culture, nothing was liquid, right? You didn't have very much actual coin that you could go, here's your inheritance. You had sheep and you had cows and you had land and... Uh, servants probably was counted as part of the estate. So when it says he gathered up all he had, what that meant was his dad had to sell most of the stuff that was sustaining this entire family. He had to liquidate the estate, and <clears throat> so that he could give his son this money. And what that would have did that would have had a huge impact on the dad and the older brother. This younger brother is totally leaving these two in the lurch. Um, because what he did was he took this estate that was worth a bunch of money and he shrunk how much it was actually worth. Which means now the dad has less to live on. And eventually, as the estate was supposed to grow and make become more valuable when the dad does die, the two-thirds that the older son gets is like way less now. It's not gonna grow, it's not gonna, you know. So this uh yeah, so, so far the story's nuts, right? So the kid gathers up everything he has. He takes off. He wants to get away from his family. I, I can't be near these people anymore. I'm going to go to a far-off country. You know what's crazy? I was thinking about this. Our church, our city, we are the far-off country, right? San Francisco is filled with younger brothers. That's why we're taking a whole week to talk about this sermon. How many of these people do you meet constantly? Where are you from? I'm from Wisconsin. Right, like you guys remember the story of the guy who said to me, the coffee shop guy. We were talking about. I was telling about Uncle Warren because he has a VW bus, and that got me talking to the coffee shop guy about the bus. And I was telling him about. That was when Warren had the VW. And I said to the guy, you know, yeah, I was telling him, and he goes, man, that's really cool. I wish I had a cool uncle. My uncle's just one of those, a-hole, evangelical Christians. What do you do for a living? And then I was like, I'm an evangelical pastor. And then we both looked at each other. And then I had a good chuckle with him. And then I was like, don't worry about it, man. I get it, right? That guy's a younger brother. That guy has some sort of a believer family. I got to get out of here. I can't be near these these Christians anymore. Where where can I go where there aren't any? San Francisco, right? And then I was like, I'll plant a church there, you know? Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. But the reason is because, I mean, actually, that's the reason to plant a church here, is because we're filled with younger brothers. We're filled with people trying uh, to escape. We live in the far-off country, right? And so we have these folks all around us. Now, so he's out there. He's living extravagantly. He's spending his money on Broadway Street. He's going to nice restaurants, (laughs) right? He's, He's living in San Francisco. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he gets out there and then he runs out of money. Uh, You guys know I like sports. I watch a little bit of sports. Um, uh, Do you guys know who Warren Sapp is? No, okay, am I the only one that knows Warren Sapp? Okay, so he was a a defensive lineman, Hall of Famer for the Bucks. I don't know, he probably retired 10 years ago. So let me read this to you from this article. Warren Sapp had a very successful, prominent career in the NFL. He played for the Bucks and the Raiders. He was such a great athlete that in 2013, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. However, after his NFL career, it turns out he wasn't that great at managing his money. He blew money on clothing, mansions, sports cars, and in 2012, so right before he became a Hall of Famer, he had to file for bankruptcy and auction off almost all of his possessions to pay IRS lawyers and the government. Now... I was like, when I was writing this sermon, I got the idea. I want to talk about these NFL players who do exactly what this younger son does. And I just put a little note in there Find an NFL player story. I found so many stories, you guys. I had to pick one. I picked Warren Sapp because I hate him. And I want everybody to know just kidding. Uh, he was a man, he used to kill the Niners. That's why I hate him. He's probably a great guy. I don't know. Uh, but he's a phenomenal defensive lineman. He hit Steve Young. It's not fair. Anyway. Um, (laughs) There were so many of them. It's to the point that now if you're a rookie and you join the NFL or the NBA, I don't think baseball does it, but I'm not sure about that. You have to go through like a how to have money orientation where older players come and talk to you about all the temptations you're gonna face. Every girl is gonna say she wants to marry you, right? Every investor, everybody in your family is gonna have a great idea for this thing that they invented. Right? They have to do these classes because people with no money, who all of a sudden have a ton of money, lottery winners, this happens all the time with lottery winners, have no idea what to do, spend all their money, and run out. That's exactly what happens to the younger son. He's like an NFL player. Here's the thing, too, about NFL players, by the way the average NFL career is like three years. So all of a sudden, you're making 500 grand a year. And in their minds, what they do is they spend money like they're going to make 500 grand a year till they're 80. But if you do that for three years, that's a million and a half dollars you have to live off for the rest of, you know, they don't plan ahead. That's what this guy did. He's an NFL player living in Vegas, spending his money, buying nice cars and everything. But what happens? Famine arose. Now, the thing is, in America, we don't know about famines, right? We had a drought. You guys remember the drought? Are we still in a drought? Okay, we're in a drought. How did that affect your life in San Francisco? You live on a farm. I don't know about you, but the rest of us, right? Their, their farm's down. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But like for the most part, oh, there's a little bit left. Okay, I don't know. Safeway still has strawberries. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like we, we just can't even fathom what it's like to live in a land where all of a sudden there's no food. And this is what happens. This guy, there's literally, there's no food. And in a land where there's no food and there's no safety net, right? There's no food stamps. There's no... Basically, this guy is completely and utterly screwed. He just spent all of his money. There's no food anywhere. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So his solution is, I'm going to find a job. Imagine if I went into a coffee shop, and not even a good coffee shop, okay? Not St. Frank's. Or Beacon or something. But let's say I went to Pete's. Is there a Pete's around here? There is? Okay. I went into Starbucks. And Warren Sapp, the guy from the NFL who used to kill Steve Young, was the barista. I'd be like, that's what you get for hitting the Niners. No, I'm just kidding. Right? That would be odd. That's what happened. This guy had tons of money. He just went from the very top to the very bottom. It's like in The Office. Do you remember Ryan from The Office? My only one that watches? Should I stop doing Office reference? You guys don't watch The Office? Mm. You should watch. Ryan, he starts out as the temp. He becomes the, like, something high up in the corporate structure. Then he commits fraud. And then he's working at a bowling alley. Right? When they go pick him up, and then he becomes a temp again. So he does this whole thing. That's kind of what this guy's doing. He went from the top all the way, uh, all the way to the bottom. But it's actually worse than that because he's handling pigs. And for any first century Jewish person listening to Jesus's story, they would go, oh, right, pigs are not good. I was actually just talking about this with a pastor friend of mine, how um, God was really on his A game when he made pigs, you know, I mean, what do we got, bacon, you got your carnitas, there's a lot of great stuff comes off those pigs, you know, and then he told his people, and then you can't have any, (laughs) right, that's how he separated them, was take the best food of all time, and so anyway, but these pigs were unclean. So he's not supposed to be hanging out with these pigs, but he's there, he's feeding the pigs. And this is how low he is. Look at this. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He's such dire straits. He wants the food the pigs are eating. Right? Imagine if you're so broke. So you take a, you put your name on Craigslist and take a part-time job walking somebody's dog. And they give you not enough money really to buy food. And so you're walking this dog, and they're like, feed the dog. And you're looking at this biscuit. You're going, boy, I could really go for one of these biscuits, right? But I'll get in a lot of trouble. They count these biscuits before I go out on my dog walk. That's the situation this guy's in. Now, look at how crazy this story gets. He wanted the pig food, and no one gave him anything. You know why they didn't give him anything? Because pigs bring money in pigs are food it's famine right and they think i would rather the pig survive than the guy because if the guy dies i'll just get another guy if the pig dies we're screwed that's how low this guy's life has sunk that nobody cares about him right he probably had a lot of friends while he was you know at the strip club with one of these you know spinning the the singles and Buying everybody rounds at the bar, and there was probably a lot of people around, and now here he is, absolute rock bottom, sitting in a pig pen covered in filth, just wanting to eat the pig food, wanting to eat the dog food, and nobody... By the way, I met, who... what is that? I met somebody once who worked at a dog food factory and said that, like, on the first day, somebody was like, just take a bite because everybody does it, and you're going to... The time between when you don't do it and you do it is going to be horrible, and the, like, stress of it. So just take a bite of it. And anyway, that has nothing to do with it. I always thought that was really funny. It's like your orientation. Take a bite of the dog biscuits. Because you know you're gonna. All right, uh, let's keep going. Verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, I perish here for hunger. So he, it says he, comes to, he came to himself. This was an idiom um, in Hebrew that was probably translated over into Greek. That meant... One of two things. He's accepting responsibility or just like having an epiphany moment. Um, as we read on, we're going to see it's probably that first meaning. He's accepting responsibility for what he's done. He's come to himself. He realized, this is all my fault. And he was homesick. Right? While he was at home, he couldn't wait to get away. Now away from home, away from his brother, away from his father, right? he, now he's there. He, he's got everything he wanted while he was at home. And it didn't go so well. And so he realizes, boy, it actually wasn't that bad (laughs) when I was at home. And so as he sits in the slot with the pigs, starving to death, he's thinking about the good old days when he had something to eat back at home, this thought comes to him, boy, even the lowest people on the totem pole at my dad's house had food to eat. Even the hired servants had something to eat. So he comes up with this brilliant plan, verse 18. I'll rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he practices this speech, right? Anybody ever practice this speech? I've never done that. I've never, like, don't go over these sermons, as you can tell. Uh, <laughs> right. I don't stand in the mirror right but so he practices this speech I used to love speech class by the way in college that was like my favorite class it's all the kids up there at their knees knocking together sweating and almost passing out it was pretty funny and then you know a couple of us were just you know, past, you know pastors like who do this all week anyway it was pretty easy anyway um so he practices this speech and he gets the wording I love the wording of it he says I will go to my father notice the wording very carefully he doesn't say I will go home He doesn't say, I'll go back. He says, I will go specifically to my father. So in his repentance, he goes straight to the root of the problem. The root of the problem was the breach with the father. He knows I have to go back, I have to go back to my father. And look what he says. He says, Father, I have sinned against, I have sinned. The language is very specific, right? He doesn't lay out a list of baloney excuses. Look, I made some bad choices. I did the best with the information that I had, you know, I wish I could take it back. He goes back and he's just very honest. Look, I've sinned. Everyone in the first century knew this language well, right? We're actually reading through this part of the New City Catechism now. What is sin? We just did this. What was today's number? 18 or 19? So question 16. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in death, and disintegration of all creation, right? So he knows, this guy knows, that's what I've done. I have sinned. He's broken God's law. Think about just what he's done. Honor your father and mother. Mm, Not so great. Uh, We'll find out later all about the prostitutes. He was greedy, pride, selfishness. Probably. I mean, the list of sins this guy has racked up in his heart and in his life. There's a lot going on here. So he comes back, he says, look, I've sinned against heaven, which is understanding that all sin is like spitting in God's face. Every sin. This is uh, David in, what is that, Psalm 51, after the Bathsheba thing, right? He tells the Psalm, sorry, he tells the Lord in that Psalm, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Not that sin doesn't affect other people, but at its root, sin is disobeying the Lord. But he's also, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He wronged his father. He, he used him and then threw the relationship away. That's hurtful stuff. So what he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so this is, what, this is his plan. So uh, treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, so to understand this, you have to understand the pecking order in a household like this, a farm household. There's the father who's like the head of the household. Then there's the older son, who's like second in command. This is Riker, you know what I mean, from, this is William, that's uh, yeah, right, anyway. Uh, then there's the other siblings, that's like Data and Geordi, okay, this is Star Trek guys. Should I keep going? I can do this all day, I can name all the, no, okay, so there's the father, there's the older son, there's the other siblings, <laughs> then below them, right below the other siblings would be like uh, slaves and bond servants. So slaves who were lifetime slaves owned by this family. And bond servants were people who had sold themselves into slavery for like a period of time, which was most of the slavery in the Jewish world at this time. And they cared about them because, you know, they were um, workers, right? So they had at least some status. And then at the very bottom was the hired servants. This was the people that you would hire for one day and you didn't care what happened to them. These were the guys you put on the top of the ladder that you weren't sure if the ladder was going to hold, right? Because if he falls down and he dies, you just go get another one tomorrow. This is how they treated him in the pig pen. And this is what the son proposes. Not, I need to come back as a son. Not even, I need to come back as a bond servant and pay back my debt. He says, I'm going to come back at the absolute bottom of the pecking order. And what's going on here is we're getting a glimpse of the real heart of his repentance, right? He really means what he's saying to the father is he doesn't believe that he deserves to come back as a son, and he sees the depths of his sin. And then verse 20, so he rose and came to the father. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So his father, look at this, uh, while he was, so he goes to the dad, he goes back home. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Now, almost everybody points out something that I never noticed here. His dad was probably, it's implied, watching him, watching for him, right? And he was looking, hoping his son, he sees his son way off. Nobody else saw him. The older brother didn't see him. The story is not one of the hired servants who was way out on the edge of the field, saw the son walk in and ran and told the dad. It was the dad was sitting at home, sitting on his porch swing, looking at the front gate, wishing his son would come back. And the son comes home, and it says, while he's still a long way off, his father saw and felt compassion, right, in the biblical terms, right? He felt it in his guts. He saw his son coming down the road, weak and malnourished, right? Imagine what this guy would have looked like. Picture, I don't know, I feel like there's a million movies like this where somebody gets lost in the desert, and then they make it across the desert, and they come into town, and they haven't had water, and they're like walking zombies kind of, right? He's weak, he's malnourished, tattered clothes, no shoes, he's unkept, looking absolutely awful. And his dad sees him stumbling into the farm like a, a zombie, and his heart absolutely breaks. So what does the dad do? He stands up and he runs. This is probably the most amazing part of this whole story. If you were, if you were listening to this, if you were one of the original listeners, and you heard Jesus tell this story, this is the part you would go, he did, what? What? <laughs> He ran. This is the dignified patriarch. He's an important member of his community. In the ancient world, these people didn't run, right? This is the equivalent in our culture to something like cleaning a toilet. Think about important people. Important people in our culture, they don't clean toilets, right? If you're the president of the United States, you are done cleaning toilets for the rest of your life. (laughs) You know what I mean? Barack Obama is never going to clean another toilet in his entire life. There are people who do that for him, right? And if you saw Obama, if you had him over for dinner, seems like a nice guy, right? Maybe he's over for dinner. Uh, and then he went in your bathroom and he realized it was dirty. And you walked in and he was down there cleaning your toilet. You would freak out. You, uh, hey, get up, man. No. <laughs> you would be. Very, this is like that culturally shocking to these people. This guy got up and he he did what? He ran? Why did he do it? He missed his son. That's the obvious answer. He just missed his kid. He ran and he gave him a hug. Like, we've seen this sort of thing when we see the troops coming off planes. You've seen these videos coming home from a tour in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. And the the wife and the kids haven't seen this guy for three years or whatever. You know, that, that running and embracing. That's what's going on here. But there's probably a second reason that he ran and gave him a hug. The younger son really blew it, like absolutely blew it. And he brought, remember, this is an honor-shame culture. He brought shame on this entire family. When he left, the standing of this family in the community was lowered. And in most circumstances, he could not come home without serious consequences, not just from the father, but from the community at large. Right? This town or wherever they were would have punished this kid. By running and grabbing his son, the father was shielding him from that. If everybody sees the dad embrace this kid and take him back, nobody else is going to say, but I get to punish him as part of the community. He's shielding his son from the shame that he was supposed to accrue you know, because of this. And he hugged him. Um, I read one thing as I was studying this that basically said, normally in this culture, the kid would come back up, walk up to the father. And the father would just smack him in the face, right? That would have been the cultural norm to, to, to get a, you know, the old backhand. Nobody would have been shocked if in listening to this parable, if that's how the parable had gone, but that's not what happens. What happens here is a hug and not the Christian side hug. One, two, three, you know, right? This is one of those hugs where somebody uh, picks the other one up, you know, off the ground and twirls them around kind of a hug, right? This is that kind of a hug. So he does that. This, this father is acting very not like he's supposed to, very undignified. So he hugs him, he kisses him, and the son says, so the son starts his speech, right? He says, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. So the son starts his speech, the kid. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Doesn't get to finish the speech. The whole end of the speech that he practiced in the mirror. How annoyed must he have been? I practiced this in the mirror. I had it down. And now I don't even get to, right? So the father interrupts him. Why? I don't care. (laughs) He doesn't want to hear any of it. He sees, okay, you're you're back. That's the important part. He's too excited. Um, Have you ever done that? You've been so excited. Like... You've had a, like a plan in a situation and then you got so excited you just, everything went out the window. Happens a lot, right? Um, that's what happens here. So this is what he says. Bring the best robe. There's something really obvious about this that I never thought about until I was studying for this sermon. Uh, in, you know, studying in depth to teach it. In a household like this, who had the best robe? The dad, right? He's the top of the pecking order. So in a way, he's not saying bring the best robe. He's saying bring him my robe right in a a, it's not like they would have kept an amazing robe in the closet just in case right this wasn't the kind of culture where people had a lot of clothes and so when the younger son comes home comes home his clothes are wrecked and tattered you know if he had a lot of clothes I'm guessing he sold his shirt you know he's probably in his undies in his skivvies and um he so he shows up and he says put put him in my best clothes but And when robe, don't think bathrobe, right? Think like this is what they wore, you know, jacket and suit or whatever. Now, like a game show, but wait, there's more, right? Not just the robe. What else has he won? Bring him the ring. This was the father's signet ring. This was the show everybody, if he's wearing this ring, he's part of the family. He's back. He's been fully accepted back into the family. He's no hired servant, right? And he's a full-on son. But again, what else did he win? Let's tell him uh bring shoes right he had no shoes that's how rock bottom this guy hit Uh, he had to sell his chucks can you imagine that not having a ton of chucks that's no way to live guys kill the fatted calf right this is the modern version of everybody put on your good clothes we're going to the house of prime rib and it's on me and i have a reservation already (laughs) right this is exciting stuff um right? It's party time. And what's the occasion? Oh, wait, Uh, did I miss one? Oh, I missed a verse here. I'll just read this to you. Verse 24. What's the occasion? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Nothing this son did in the eyes of the father made him not a son anymore. And so he says, my son was dead and is alive. This is one of the most beautiful verses, I wish I had a slide, and pictures that describes our salvation. It's like being dead and brought back to life. Or he says, um, he was lost and is found. A couple years ago, I read this book called 81 Days Below Zero. It is a story of a guy named, uh, I wrote it down, Leon Crane, who was this kid from Philadelphia. He was like a young, you know, early 20s maybe. Um, who got drafted into the service during World War II. And he was in a plane crash in Alaska in the winter of what year? 1943. The winter in Alaska in 1943. And he had to survive in the freezing cold for 80, that's why it's called 81 days below. 81 days this guy survived. Now, could you imagine the relief he felt when he was finally, I'm spoiling the book, but I mean, he wrote the book, so... Uh, (laughs) he was, when he was found, could you imagine that relief of being found? Now, they had a funeral and everything for him, right? Because everybody else in the crash died. He was the only survivor of this crash, right? So imagine walking in castaway style, right, with his family. Wait, you're not dead? That's the son here. So they're excited. So they partied, right, like it's 1999. Get the fat calf out. We're going to the house of Prime Rib. Now, Remember the party. This is the context. This is what Jesus says when, uh, when one of the sheep comes home or whatever. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. This is the party. This is Jesus flushing out this parable. Or again, just so I tell you that she finds the coin, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is the picture. That's where we're going to leave it today. This is the story of the younger son. right? The younger son who repented and came home. The father accepted him and is overjoyed at his return. And now there's this party. And everybody, well, almost everybody, joins in the party. That's the reason Tim Keller chose this Story is the basis for a whole book, right, on explaining the gospel to people. The story of the prodigal son is really a fantastic retelling of gospel truth. It's the It does an amazing job at just really clearly laying out our worldview so well. But I want to share something with you. While I was studying this, I came across something that I think is pretty interesting. There's a Buddhist version of the prodigal son parable. You ever heard this? Okay, yeah, most people haven't. Now, we live in a culture, we were Chinatown, right? There's a lot of Buddhism around us. And then all of the white people in San Francisco are what I call accidental Buddhists, where it's like, what do you believe? And they give me all this Buddhist stuff, and I go, oh, that's Buddhism. No, 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 it's just spirituality, man. I'm like, okay, but that's Buddhism. So maybe someday I'll write a book called Accidental Buddhists, right? They're Buddhists, they don't even know. So we have Buddhism all around us, right? We should know about it. and, you know, there's, like, Buddhism has different branches, just like Christianity. It's complicated. But there's a Buddhist version of this parable. I'm going to tell you the story. And we're going to compare it to our version. So there's a young man who, just like the prodigal here, he runs away from home. The difference in this story is, though, the dad is poor. The son is poor. The son runs away from home. Years go by. The son comes on hard times. Meanwhile, while the son is away, the father becomes very rich. The son has no idea his father has become rich. And so the whole time, he's bummed out, the father. I'm super rich, but I have no son anymore. I I wish my son would come home. So meanwhile, the son is traveling around doing low-wage jobs and living in poverty, feeding the pigs kind of a thing. And one day, he, he comes to this town, not realizing his rich dad has moved to this town. And he's looking for work. And he comes to... This guy who's a rich guy, he doesn't realize it's his father. And in the story, I love this. His dad is sitting on a lion couch with a jeweled footstool. That's what it says, totally decked out, right? Lion skin couch with the head and everything. You know, you can imagine two lion heads as the arms, jewels everywhere, totally decked out, right? So the dad immediately recognizes the son when he comes to ask for a job. But the son does not recognize the dad. And so the son, seeing the power of the man in front of him, I thought I was just applying for a job, but here I am. This man is powerful. He runs away in fear. And so then the dad starts to worry. I might never see my son again. What do I do? So first he sends a servant to get the son without revealing his identity. He doesn't tell him, hey, that was your dad. So he sends his servant to go and grab this guy and bring him back, bring the son back by force. And when when they try, the son freaks out thinking he's going to be arrested and executed or what have I done? This rich, powerful man is upset with me. And so the dad calls off the whole thing. Okay, just let him be. Don't, don't bring him in by force. He realizes he can't, the son can't handle being back. And so what happens is the son takes off again. The dad, which, wishing to reach his son, he sends men to go find him. They dress up like poor people. And they go out to the son and they offer him not the original job he thought he was applying for, but the lowest job that the dad had to offer. And then a lot of, so the son takes the job. A lot of son, uh, sorry, a lot of time goes by. Uh, The son just works and works. He's just living this hard life in the father's household, but like at the very bottom. Eventually, the dad, man, I really want to spend time with my son. So he dresses up like a poor person and he goes down there and he starts hanging out with the son. And he tells him, who doesn't even know who this guy is. He tells his son, hey, you're a really good worker, and I really appreciate that. And unlike all these other lazy workers around here. So from now on, I'm gonna treat you with a more elevated status. You've earned it with your hard work. And I'm gonna treat you kinda like my son. But in his mind, the son, who really is this guy's son, never thinks of himself as anything more than a hired hand. And for 20 years he works, his job was gathering up garbage, walking around and picking up garbage, right? and never moved out of his small little worker's hut. And then the dad dies. The dad becomes ill and he dies. Never tells the son that he was his dad. And on his deathbed, you know, uh, he tells everybody, oh, that's my kid. And then he dies. They go get the kid. They read the will. And the kid's like, what? That was my dad the whole time. And the reason that the father never told him Is not really stated exactly, but this is an honor-shame kind of culture. He he thought the son would be too ashamed to come back. So I'm going to let him earn his way back in. I'm going to let him think he made his way back in through his behavior. Now, let's compare that story with the story of the prodigal son, right? The story of the prodigal God in, in our text, right? In the Buddhist version, there's a lost son. How is he lost? He's wandering. He never wants to come back home. Do you notice that's the difference? He never goes, I'm going to go find my dad. I'm going to rebuild that relationship. He just accidentally finds the dad. And in Buddhism, the way it works is people are wandering from life to life in the cycle of reincarnation, hoping to become more wise and move towards what Buddhists call nirvana, right, to kind of this eternal nothingness. In the New Testament, though, lostness is very different. Lostness is intentional, willful sin, separation from the father, How do they get back home in the Buddhist parable? To break the cycle, right? In Buddhism, you want to break the cycle and head towards nirvana, the cycle of reincarnation. And so when the son comes home on accident, again, the father doesn't embrace him right away. He creates this false situation where the son can earn his way back in. And the process takes 20 years. And the implication of the story is that the process wasn't even done but it was hastened by the father's illness. He was still working his way back towards being accepted. But the New Testament paints a very different picture, doesn't it? The New Testament picture is grace. There's no 20 years of cleaning up garbage when you come back to Jesus. There's no prerequisites. There's just come home and get a hug right? Everything else has been taken care of. There's no debt to pay, no process to work through, no seemingly endless cycles of reincarnation where you move from a butterfly to something else, to something else, and then back to a butterfly because you were a terrible monkey, and then to a human being every couple of hundred cycles where maybe you could break the cycle. And there's none of that. There's just come back home. Now, what happens when he's back home? In the Buddhist parable, the point is the inheritance, The parable ends with the son inheriting everything and kind of being happy, getting the stuff from, you know, there's a great fortune there. And, um, but in the New Testament, it's a little different, right? In the New Testament, this is so wonderful. What's the point of the son's return? It's the hug. That's the point, the embrace, the relationship. At the end of the tunnel, at the end of the road is not disappearing into nirvana, into nothingness. It's this deep, powerful, loving relationship with God the Father, the Father who created you. And so deep down, as we look at the prodigal son story, what's so amazing about it is how different it is from this Buddhist version of the prodigal son. Deep down, we need to ask ourselves, which one of these things do we long for in our hearts? Which story is more real? That you're in a cycle of reincarnation where you only get to be a human every now and again, And what you really long for is to just sort of disappear into nirvana. Or are you homesick, fallen away from the home that you were created for and the love that you were meant to enjoy and embrace? I think that's what's so amazing about the prodigal son story, is how well it hits the gospel. So let me just give you two quick takeaways. Um, This is how I'll end. Two quick takeaways. The first is... Rest in the heart of the Father. As we read this story, this is amazing teaching. This amazing gospel teaching. And the main point of it is, rest in, this is it, rest in the Father. Um, A.W. Tozer uh, wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. He wrote a lot of books, is one of them. He says this, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he's eternal, his love has no end. Because he's infinite, it has no limit. Because he's holy, it is the, how do you say that word? Quintessence. quintessence? That was my fifth guess. It is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Like, this is, this is who God is. This is who the Father is. And so the call to sinners is come home to this, Come home. But here's the other thing, we'll get into this a little more next week, but coming home has a cost. Coming home is not free. The son, I mean, he pissed away all this money, it's gone, right? There was a cost to, 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 somebody had to bear that cost, right? And for the father, it cost him money, status, it was painful to see his son leave. So when his son comes home, the father is the one who just absorbs that cost. So you coming home for that hug is amazing, but at the same time, it also costs the father a great deal. The good news is it doesn't cost you anything. Right? Grace is free, but it's, you know, it's not cheap. <laughs> right? That's that's how it works. All right. The, the the last thing, so first is rest in the heart of the Father. The second thing is reflect the heart of the Father. See that? They're both our things. I finally did that. I've never done that before in my entire <laughs> preaching career. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. So you rest in the heart of the Father, you reflect the heart of the Father. Imagine two little boys one with a terrible father who, who drinks and is lazy. And, you know, the other one has a father who's a warm and loving, you know, the first kid, his father has been unemployed and bounced, you know, he's always constantly getting fired. The second kid who has this amazing, warm, loving father, his dad's an astronaut or something like that. Now, if someone was to say to the first boy, wow, you really remind me of your dad, he would go, all right, my dad sucks. <laughs> That's a bummer. But if somebody says to that second boy, hey, you really remind me of your dad, puff his chest out a little bit, right? He'd be pretty excited. The heart of our father is worth emulating, right? Our dad is the good one. And we want to live the kind of lives that people look at us and go, hey, you kind of remind me of your father. That's the point. Now, you may be reading this here in the sermon thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not the younger son, though right? All of this is kind of in my past. I went through this younger son business a long time ago, right? I came back to the father a long time ago. I'm not wandering anymore. I come to church every week, sometimes even on time. I actually had that in my notes even before everybody was late today, so there you go, um, <laughs> right? I go to church. I'm church people. I give. I go Wednesday night. I talk about Pabst. I try to do my thing. Well, the good news for you is the story's not over, and that's why we stopped here on purpose, right? But You know the coming home of the younger brother is not the main point of the parable. So for us church people, next week we're going to get to talk about ourselves more. So I'll see you back here next Sunday. Same bad time, same bad channel. Right? That's what they.